Welcome to the Development Policy Center. In this podcast, entitled International Intervention and Local Politics, you'll hear a panel discussion featuring two of the authors of a recently published book. The book is entitled International Intervention and Local Politics, Fragmented States and the Politics of Scale. The authors, Shaha Hameri and Fabio Scarpelli, will discuss their approaches to writing, demonstrating their utility with a case study of the Aceh Government Transformation Program. Saku Akmamina will act as a discussant, providing a policy practitioner's perspective on the book's findings, and Terence Wood acts as chair. We hope you enjoy this podcast. All right, so just uh, turned 12.30, so we might kick off. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Terence Wood. I'm a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre, and I have the good fortune of chairing today's event. Um, before I go any further, I want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet today, and I want to pay my respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Our speakers today are Saha Hamiri, Fabio Scarpello, and Saku Akmimana. And... Um, Saha is an Associate Professor of International Politics at the University of Queensland. Uh, Fabio is a consultant with VJW International and an Associate Fellow of the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University. And Saku is the Principal Specialist in Governance at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Saha and Fabio are here today because they are the co-authors, along with Caroline Hughes from the University of Bradford, of the book International Interventions in Local Politics, Fragmented States and the Politics of Scale. And this book draws upon some fascinating research and I think makes a really cogent argument about how the scale of operation, be it local, national or international, strengthens the hands of differing actors actors during international interventions. Uh, It resonates for me uh, with my own work on the distantly related area of electoral quality and it contributes to what I think is a crucial endeavour for the aid world broadly, but very specifically for the aid world here in Australia because many of the interventions it discusses and many of the issues it covers are particularly pertinent for the environment that Australia and Australian aid operates within. Um, so I'm, gonna, uh, I'm excited to hear um, to sit here and to hear what has to be said. I'm going to uh, quietly join you in the audience now, uh, interrupting only if the authors run over time. So Saha and Fabio, you're going to speak first as a double act. You've got 30 minutes. Uh, from that point on, I'll start tapping my watch and looking increasingly agitated. After you've spoken, uh, you'll hand over to Saku, who will speak for 10 minutes, and then we'll open to the audience for questions. So please join me in welcoming our speakers today. Thank you very much, Terence, and uh, thanks to Ashley, if she, oh, there she is, for organising the event, and, for, uh, and to everyone from uh, the uh, Development Policy Centre here that have helped organise this. We're very happy to be here. Now, I've got a, a book to wave around. There is an actual book. It's not just on the slides. It's uh, officially out today. This is the only book that I'm aware of that exists in the world, so we, man- we managed to get one to bring here. Uh, Cambridge University Press. Yeah, it came out uh, literally today, officially, so... Uh, available in most good bookstores, especially online. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, now, the book, what a book is essentially about, uh, as, the, uh, as the title would, would indicate, uh, is a study of how international interventions interact with the recipients of those interventions. I'm sure that most of the people in this room would know that since the end of the Cold War, peace promotion interventions have both uh, ramped up in number, but also become a lot more intrusive than they used to be previously. 
<clears throat> and uh, those interventions have involved a wide range of intrastate activities, ranging from police building all the way to various forms of public administration reform, which is what the book mostly focuses on empirically, but many other activities involved in changing how states work internally. And that entailed uh, a shift from uh, what was described as the naive interpretation of, of uh, peace building, uh, prevalent maybe uh, in the earlier parts of the 1990s, which suggested that all you need to do to uh, promote peace in countries where there have been uh, internal conflict would just come, liberalise the economy, uh, bring about electoral democracy and everything will be okay. Now, that experience didn't prove uh, very successful, and that led to a shift at that point towards what has been described as state building, which is exactly what I was describing before. Those kinds of attempts to build states, or more accurately, to change how they work internally, to change how they uh, you know, pr uh, provide certain services, how they uh, um, relate to their society, and so on and so forth. Uh, that is what uh, the term state building has, um, has uh, referred to um, and, and oftentimes the aim of these interventions has been described as promoting good governance, um, which uh, is seen to also promote various forms of economic development and social political development as well. But then came uh, a moment uh, probably about 10 years ago when uh, um, practitioners and scholars alike began to understand that even those interventions are not actually attaining their objectives, at least uh, sometimes. In some cases they were, but often they were not. And that also led to a new wave of soul searching that went through both practitioner circles but also uh, scholarly uh, fields as well. One example from the practitioner side of things, a very interesting one for me, is the United States uh, counterinsurgency manual uh, that came out in 2006. So you went from a situation in about three years where the President of the United States at the time, George Bush, was saying everyone essentially wants freedom like we have here in the United States. Three years later, the counterinsurgency manual was saying, no, they have their own way of doing things and we don't want to actually uh, interfere with that. And what we need to do to be successful is actually learn to kind of work with the local culture. So that was a very rap rapid shift. Undoubtedly, um, you know, these interventions have produced very uneven outcomes. Sometimes they were successful, sometimes they're not successful. So for scholars, what became a new agenda of research from uh, around 10 years ago was actually trying to understand not what the interven interveners were doing, what were their ideas, modalities, practices, and so on, which used to be the agenda of previous times, but actually understand how they interface with the recipients of intervention to produce those different outcomes of intervention. In the book, uh, what we begin with actually is looking at those various approaches that have developed to look at international intervention. And those we define as belonging largely to development studies on one hand and to peace building on the other hand. And although they, they talk about very similar things, they've developed largely in splendid isolation. They very rarely actually talk to each other. And the concepts that they use tend to be quite different, and the frameworks, theories, and so on are quite different. Now, I'm not going to be able to go into these. In too much detail, I'll be happy to elaborate a bit more in the question and answer. What we argue in the book that the collective weakness of these approaches, even though they do provide advance on, they do advance on the earlier approaches that I mentioned before, which look mostly the interveners, we argue that collectively their weakness stems from a lack of attention to the politics of scale as a key manifestation of social and political conflict over the outcomes of intervention programs. In development studies, which is maybe more familiar to many people here in the room, there's been a partial political economy turn in both practitioner circles, but also uh, in scholarly circles. 
That political economy turn is very partial. In fact, it remains even now at the margins of especially practice in, in development. We argue that although the uh, emphasis on uh, domestic uh, political economy power relations is actually very good, um, and, and we draw on some of that scholarship in our own book, I don't, we don't think it goes far enough in actually understanding what intervention does here in this context. It, it sees in, interventions external to those power relations, doesn't actually deal with that very effectively. In peace building, we've seen the concept of hybridity uh, take center stage over the last few years. Uh, again, very large literature has emerged very quickly uh, that uses that concept. I can't get into it now, happy to discuss later, but we argue in the book uh, that that concept uh, does some violence. Um, that it creates a binary between the, um, the supposedly liberal internationals and the non-liberal uh, locals, which we argue does, uh, uh, does not ac accurately describe how interventions, uh, how the interveners and the locals interact, but also um, does not actually analyze particularly well uh, why outcomes are the way they are. Okay, so before we get into our approach, let me just give you a couple of very quick uh, takes on, on what the key concepts are that we use in the book. The first one is scale. So scale, we use the concept as, as it's used in political geography, and that refers to territorial spaces in which social, political, and economic relations are organized and contested, and these uh, spaces exist in some kind of hierarchical relations to other similar scales. Now, scales can and often are uh, administrative tiers within the same states, so the national, provincial, district, and so on, but they could also cut across them. It could be uh, things like bioregions or local communities and so on. Now, the crucial point to understand from the point of view of political geography that we've drawn here is that how space is organized is seen to be mutually constitutive with power relations in society. And scales are no different to how political geographers view other spatial forms like territory and so on. They unevenly allocate power, resources, and political opportunities to different groups in society. So essentially, what is governed through local, national, district, etc., scales through their institutions and processes, and how it's done, we argue, really matters for the outcomes of social political conflict over various issues. Hence, essentially, from our point of view, in, uh, scales and, and, and their interrelations are, are not natural. They're produced through strategic agency and social and political contestation. So the construction of scale by agents, we, see, we, we look at it as essentially one available means for intervening in social and political conflict that is designed to reinforce or challenge particular distributions of power and resources in society. Now, this is a bit abstract at this point, but the case study that Fabio will uh, present soon, I think we'll be able to clarify exactly what we mean by that. The term the politics of scale, which comes from the work essentially or initially uh, by Neil Smith, refers to conflicts over how scales are produced, their scope and their relative power. Now, why is the politics of scale actually crucial in the context of international intervention? The thing, the thing that makes the politics of scale crucial in this context is that these interventions take place in a context where states retain their formal sovereignty. I mentioned that at the beginning. They don't seek to do away with the sovereignty of the recipient states, rather they seek to change how they work internally. In other words, what interveners attempt to do largely is to, we call it rescale, but essentially internationalize parts of target states' public administrations so that these parts of the public administration become responsive not so much to domestic political and popular pressures, 
which are usually viewed as hindering peace and development, they're viewed quite negatively in their own right, but actually to international agendas and targets that the interveners would like to attain. Now, in practice, this is done largely either through the inserting of public servants into key positions within the bureaucracy or through the benchmarking and external regulation of how particular agencies operate, uh, benchmarked against peers or in terms of whatever uh, objectives are, are put in place, or sometimes through the use of conditionalities as well. I think it's also important to say that this rescaling of or internationalization of uh, public administrations of target states tends to be relatively selective. It tends to focus on parts of the administration that are seen to be more important for attaining broader objectives. And these usually are things like the police, the Ministry of Finance, which controls budgets, and so on and so forth. In the book, the concept that we use to describe this process, we call that a scalar strategy of internationalization. And we argue that when successful, which is not always the case, as we'll discuss in a second, it produces a fragmented state where the politics of scale is built into how the state is structured and also how it functions in practice. Recipients, in turn, respond to this scale of strategy of internationalization with their own scale of strategies. And it is the interaction of these scale of strategies, which I'll describe in a second, alongside, along with the coalition that actually promote or resist these strategies that produces interventions and even, out, and even outcomes. We develop a four-step method in the book for actually analyzing the outcomes of intervention, which are there in front of you, which draw, this method draws on this idea of the politics of scale alongside uh, Gramscian uh, political economy analysis. This analysis, which we base largely on the work of uh, theorist Bob Jessup, sees institutions and their outputs not as something that is neutral, but as a product of conflict and accommodation between coalitions in society and state whose makeup, the actual composition of these coalitions and relative strength is rooted in the political economy. From this point of view, the state and its institutions can never be viewed as neutral, not even in theoretical abstraction. The key concept that we take from Jessup's work is that of strategic selectivity. And what that concept suggests is that how institutions are designed and actually function tends to systematically advantage certain interests in society as well as their usually ideologies, uh, practices and strategies over other groups in society. Now very briefly I'll go through the four-step method before I head it over to Fabio. The first step is focus on a particular project or program of intervention. So in the book we don't look at entire intervention as one piece, we don't look at sectors as one thing, we look at particular programs and projects and that is because we find that the way the different groups in society interact with different parts of the intervention, different aspects of the intervention, tends to be different. In some cases, some parts are advantageous to certain groups, but other parts may be disadvantageous to the very same groups. And they will tend to respond accordingly and form coalitions in response to particular parts of the project. This is why we see intervention outcomes as highly uneven, both across countries, but also between inside countries, between different parts of different parts of the overall intervention and even within the same project, as the case study will indicate very soon. The second step is to identify the precise forces that are involved in those struggles. Who are they? Where do they come from? How do they interact with other forces in society? Crucially, the coalition that we look at, which agitate either way in the case of particular projects, we don't see them as having interveners on one side and the locals on the other side. The coalition often combine 
the groups, and this is again something that the case study will demonstrate quite clearly, we deploy a historical sociological method which tries to trace where these particular groups in society come from, what are their outlooks, how do they relate to other groups, and we contextualise the intervention within that longer-term history of how these forces develop. The third aspect of the analysis, which is probably the most original one for this book, is the incorporation of scalar strategies. We already mentioned the strategy of internationalization, but we also look at how the recipients of intervention then respond with their own scalar strategies, which then produce a variety of outcomes for intervention. The first two strategies that we discuss in the book relate largely to the agency of the recipient government, which is in a privileged position in recipient societies because precisely these interventions take place in the context of sovereign states, not in the context where sovereignty is done away. And that actually accords the recipients some power that other actors in those societies don't have. Of course, the government itself could be fragmented and made up of multiple interests, but uh, we talk about that as well in the book. And we call that function of the recipient government scale management. It provides them the capacity to exercise some power in, in you know, affecting how scalar strategies play out. The first strategy is that of total rejection. Recipients can pretty much in every single case totally reject international intervention, and sometimes that occurs, but it doesn't occur very often because usually the resources that interveners bring in are actually uh, very much in demand in those societies. The second strategy that we talk about, which is probably the most important one, is that of selective adoption at the national or at another dominant scale. Uh, in our case study, the dominant scale is actually the province, and Fabio will describe that in just my moment. Now, selective adoption um, is where forces within the recipient government will seek to take some parts of the intervention, resist other parts of the intervention, or try and affect how it, uh, institutions that are being internationalised actually function in practice. And, and, and they do that usually to further their own agendas or interests or to marginalise political rivals. The last strategy is that of localization, and that usually involves local groups uh, trying to create a local scale and then shift authority and resources down to that scale. And how that happens could take a multiple, uh, uh, multiple ways. It could be either in the form of decentralization programs like the World Bank does, for instance, uh, or it could be uh, through the form of uh, uh, claims to some kind of organic pre-existing community that deserves, because of that, a greater share, a greater autonomy and a greater share of resources. The final step is actually bringing it all together. And what we do in practice, we bring all these steps together and then we look at particular attempts to rescale particular parts of the administration. We identify the forces involved in, in, in struggles over the outcomes of those interventions. We see whether rescaling has occurred at all, if it had occurred, to what extent it's occurred. And then we see how the institution that are created function in practice and which interests in society are uh, advantaged or disadvantaged by that. And with that, I'll hand over to Fabio for his part of the presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Right, as Shah said, we actually ground each chapter in a very detailed uh, historical sociological analysis. I have no time to go into that. But as a brief background, you know, this uh, Archer Government Transformation Program was implemented by the UNDP in collaboration with the provincial government in Archer, roughly between 2007 and 2012. It was a program that was funded by the multi-donor fund, uh, managed by the World Bank, and having in the European community a very powerful uh, co-chair. 
It was essentially a state-building program. The main aim was to strengthen the capacity of the provincial government to take the responsibility from the BRR. The BRR was an Indonesian government agency, ad hoc agency, that was constituted basically to, uh, to run the post-tsunami reconstruction operations. He, he started phasing out in 2007 and eventually closed in mid-2009. So the, the program was there to strengthen the capacity of the government to take over responsibility. It was also a peace-building program because, as many of you will be aware, Aceh was actually the theatre of a pro-independence war for about 30 years, led by the Jerakan Aceh Merdeka, GAM, and the tsunami was pretty much a catalyst for peace. Uh, peace strange, uh, changed quite drastically the strategic selectivity of the state in Aceh. It is fair to say that during the conflict, the social political group that were associated with Jakarta and represented mainly through the military in Aceh were those favored in accessing state power and resources in the province. It also equally fair to say that with the signing of the PC in August 2005, the social political group that were associated with GAM became those that were favored in accessing state power and resources at provincial level in uh, Aceh. And we should also mention that at the same time, pretty immediately after the signing of the peace agreement, GAM fragmented. So we also had the quite an increasing and continuing to this day uh, intra-elite struggles among GAM elite, uh, elite groups. And the provincial government, the control of the provincial government, became a key means through which these GAM elite contested for power and resources. So very briefly, this is the context within which uh, this project came to play a role. And he essentially, he had uh, three main aims. Uh, to support the government through the phasing out of the BRR, as I said. Also, to support the government beyond that, uh, if you think about towards uh, sustainable development. And a third, we had quite an ambitious aim, you know, to introduce some elements of bureaucratic reform, especially in regards on how bureaucrats are recruited and promoted in Aceh. Uh, to spoil your fun, this is what happened. Uh, the first two aims were partly achieved. The third one failed completely. And this takes me to what Shah was saying. You know, we, we usually, we shouldn't really talk about project or program in terms of being successful or unsuccessful. We should really talk about being, you know, delivering uneven results. And what we think is that uh, our framework helps actually in explaining exactly that. Why do we have uneven uh, results? I'm going to take each one of these main objectives one at a time. And what I'm going to and what I'm going to try to do is to highlight this, the key SCALA strategy that was implemented, identify the groups that supported it or opposed the specific objective, and linking those to the broader political economy. And hopefully by the end of this presentation, you will have a better idea of why we, let, uh, we had these uneven results. So let's start with the first one. It's the immediate assistance, basically one the BRI was facing out. The AGTP partly achieved this in supporting Irwandi, who is a key person within this context. He was the first governor uh, post-peace. He was a former senior member of GAM, the rebel group. However, he was elected as an independent candidate. This shows both the emergency of GAM as a, the emergence of GAM as a political force, but the internal fragmentation of the group. The AGTP was really framed in supporting the, uh, the Irwandi administration. And the immediate objective was achieved through establishing the so-called team assistancy. 
This is a group of about 70 uh, advisors that were handpicked by Irwandi and divided in seven different clusters, and they had policy-making objectives, you know, devising policy in support of Irwandi. As you can see, immediately it is a scalar strategy because this group of advisors basically shifted the policy-making process away from the existing bureaucratic apparatus and governance structure to a certain extent. And therefore, you know, it is a scalar strategy. But it's interesting to see who supported this and who opposed this. At one level, of course, Irwandi and GAM were supportive of this team assistancy. And the reasons are pretty obvious. Irwandi took over bureaucratic apparatus that had, up to that point, been loyal to Jakarta. So he didn't trust the bureaucratic apparatus. He also became governor when GAM fragmented, so it was important for him to bring his own men for many reasons. So he was really keen on having team assistance in place. GAM, at least the factions of GAM that were loyal to, to Irwandi, saw this as an opportunity to partake in the spoils of peace. So they were very favorable, favorable to team assistance. On the other hand, UNDP, was also very keen on team assistance, although for different reasons. I can talk about this more later, but basically <coughs> UNDP and Irwandi start discussing about something that eventually became the AGTP well before Irwandi became governor, more or less when it was clear that was one of the leading candidates. And one of the preconditions that Irwandi placed on the table was, okay, if we gotta develop this project, there has to be something like, it was eventually called team assistance a team of ad hoc advisors that I can handpick. So UNDP supported team assistance all along for a very different reasons. On the other end, we see that there is you know, quite, a, quite a coalition of forces that opposed team assistance. We had civil servants, and that is obvious why. Team assistance came to represent, to a certain extent, a shadow government. So this impeded civil servants to exercise their function to the way that they wanted, to access resources and exercise power. But also we see that the World Bank and the European Commission were very much against team assistance. For political reasons, both the World Bank and the European Commission were pretty much forced to finance a GDP, and I can talk more about that later. However, they really, really disliked this particularly objective, you know, team assistance, because he lacked transparency, it was no best practice, it was clearly politically motivated. And there was a lot, a lot of conflict between the World Bank, the European Commission, and UNDP throughout the, the, the lifespan of team assistance. So if we have a key learning out of this first objective, is that you know, we really can't talk about you know, international, local, or, or so on and so forth. This sort of dichotomy that are very much prominent within the hybrid literature. If we look into the details, actually the, the coalitions of forces within and beyond the state that support specific objective or project or program, it's usually much more complicated than that. And it will become even clearer as I go along. The second objective is the longer term assistance to the provincial government. And IGTP supported about 10 or 12 uh, provincial agency, uh, but eventually the bulk of the assistance was on so-called unit P2K. This is an ad hoc agency that was constituted and placed on top and tasked with the monitoring how, how the provincial agency disbursed the funds. So again, you see a clear scalar strategy here, instituting, constituting an independent agency, an ad hoc agency that operates 
above the existing bureaucratic uh, apparatus, you know, switching uh, particularly uh, power functions. And if we look at, at you know, who supported and who opposed it, it becomes even more interesting. At one hand, we see that all the donors, in this case, and civil society, of course, supported unit P2K. There is no doubt that this unit introduced, introduced elements of good governance and transparency and accountability in the process of dispersing uh, the budget in many government agencies in Aceh. And I can talk about that as well later. So there is a clear reason why the donors were keen on these units and they supported it throughout. On the other hand, it was supported also by Irwandi and by Zaini. Zaini is the governor that replaced Irwandi in 2012. But the interesting point to understand, and, in, and this is how we locate the social political group within the broader political economy, is that they supported it for very different reasons. The, the, the issue for them was not about good governance. It was not about transparency. But it was about power relations with the other government agency. Uh, the unit P2K it was an ad hoc agency placed directly under the governor. So he basically allowed the governor to exercise more power in the infrastructure with other provincial agencies. That's why they were very supportive of this agency. Of course, you know, the various government agencies were clearly against this. Uh, in, in Aceh, like in many other parts of Indonesia and in the world, I should add, you know, the process of dispersing uh, budgets is it's, it's, it's at times murky and uh, it's open to uh, illegal practices. And this also allows individuals or groups to access funds illegally. So introducing elements of transparency uh, prevented some social groups to access funds in uh, that way. So were they really against it? One important point that we have to make here is the differentiation between strategic alliances and tactical alliances. Uh, you know, plural political economy approaches, rightly so, uh, suggest that donors should create, should establish alliances with reform-minded individual groups. And there is no doubt that this is the way to go. The issue is that in some instances, actually I should say often, these reform-minded individual groups, they have no actual power. So they go nowhere. The strategic alliances, they go nowhere. What we, among others, suggest is that in some cases, it may be better to establish tactical alliances with a powerful individual that are not necessarily uh, reform-minded. In this case, a tactical alliance with the Rwandian, especially Zaini, who are not particularly reform-minded, led to introduce some element of good governance. Even if this tactical alliance was based on different reasons. As I mentioned, Irwani and Zaini supported P2K not on good governance uh, premises, but to strengthen the power relation with the Arab agency. So we think tactical alliances are the way to go, at least in some cases. And if we look at the third main objective of the AGTP, that is bureaucratic reform. And it was you know, a pre the, the, by far the more ambitious aim of the AGTP. Uh, in particular, they tried to introduce a degree of merit-based uh, approach to recruitment, and they tried to introduce elements of good governance and good governance benchmarking, particularly within the P B BKPP. This is the agency in Aceh that is tasked with training civil servants. So basically, the idea is we train the trainers, and they internalize the element of good governance, and they pass it on to the other civil servants 
you know, when they train them. Unfortunately, so these are clear Scala strategists. Again, you try to introduce some benchmarking that really answer uh, the wishes of donors, if you, if you so want, and try to isolate, therefore, what's happening from the local context that you think is inefficient, corrupt, and so on and so forth. Uh, Unfortunately, it didn't go very well. You know, at one end, we had the coalition of interest that was really, really supporting this, and they poured a lot of money into this that constituted by all the donors and civil society. And again, the reason for them was good governance. And there is clear need for this. Uh, it is very murky, the process through which bureaucrats are recruited and promoted in action. However, in this case, we see that the governors, both of them, as well as you know, the bureaucratic apparatus, were really anti-these uh, bureaucratic reforms. In, in, in more detail, you know, both Irwandi and Zaini actually uh, were very keen to have their own men within the bureaucratic apparatus, and they were very keen to push forward various reshuffles, but they were not at all interested in improving introducing element of transparency in the process through which bureaucrats uh, were recruited and promoted. And this is because essentially this process constituted a key element through which a political elite established a system of patronage, a network of patronage. Uh, so the, the one key point that we take from this is that, uh, of course, you know, it, it is almost inevitable to have sometimes very ambitious reform, uh, reform objective. But realistically, in, in many contexts, it's probably better you know, to have a very small and progressive and limited objective and to move forward. And in this case, it's also the difference between a, a regular political economy analysis and, and a critical political economy analysis. In this case, a basic critical political economy analysis would have identified uh, that uh, bureaucratic reform was very likely to fail in Asia. And in the context in which donors have to be uh, very much accountable how they spend aid, that's probably uh, 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 the way to go in the future, I would suggest. Uh, in terms of final remark, let me just bring together also what Shaha said. The first argument that we make is that interve international intervention are really about state transformation, especially in like, you know, the last 20 years or so. Uh, and they're much more subtle than they used to be, uh, but there are a lot out there, so it really matters. And they are contested, um, as, as, as Shaha highlighted, as, as I think in my uh, presentation demonstrated, they are very much contested. Uh, we also uh, underline the fact that we shouldn't talk about success or failures. Uh, the issue is really about uneven outcomes, and we think uh, that this, this is what needs to be explained. Why do we have uneven out outcomes? We suggest that one way, one way to you know, gain some insight into this unevenness is really to look at the scholar strategies the social political groups support and linking the social political groups to the broader political economy context. This dual process, we think, uh, leads to better understanding as to why specific segments of a project or a program may be selectively adopted by the local elite or they may be rejected. I'll leave it at that. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. Thank you. Thank you to the Development Policy Centre for inviting me on the panel today. 
Um, let me start by congratulating the authors for an extremely interesting and provocative piece of work um, and for applying the theoretical tools of political geography to critique some of the peace and state building efforts of recent times. I think the notion of scalar politics Scalar politics is very useful in helping us to think about the multiple sites of contest in a globalised world, um, above, below and alongside the state, um, and for reinforcing the notion, um, especially to development and uh, peace-building actors who have historically been wedded to the national level. Um, development is contest, so that the idea that various actors face incentives to rescale contests um, to a level at which their hand is strongest is undeniable, I think. Um, I'm also happy to see uh, the authors debunk some of the binary distinctions that have been resorted to in trying to put order um, complexity um, and, uh, and, and their emphasis on trying to explain uneven results. Um, However, I, I do question uh, your claim that, uh, your, that the framework provides greater explanatory power um, than other frameworks in terms of uh, political settlement framework, for, for instance, which I think is dismissed in the book a little bit unfairly because I, I think um, the early donor and World Bank experiments with or um, political economy analysis um, were, were much more efforts to instrumentalise stakeholder analysis to, to reach certain ends. I think there is a much greater embrace of the notion that um, we, have, we underestimate our impacts on the social and political order in the countries in which we intervene, um, but we overestimate our ability to intentionally affect outcomes. Um, and I think that is um, much better um, accepted these days than was in the early days of political economy uh, 10 years ago. Um, I think um, certainly the conclusion that national elites have selectively adopted and undermined donor-driven reforms in accordance with their own interests is consistent with conclusions that have been reached in the, in the state-building literature and in the development literature, and most recently... Um, by Naz Barma in her um, analysis of Afghanistan, Timor and Cambodia in her book on the peace-building puzzle, where she basically explains how, in, um, uh, how these interventions empowered national elites at every scale to help fortify their neo-patrimonial um, systems of governance. Um, this is something that I can't fault... Um, uh, scholars on because it's really about how international agencies work. But I, I, I have, before I joined DFAT, I worked uh, with the World Bank and I worked collaboratively with the UN on a couple of pieces of work, neither of which have been in the public domain yet, um, uh, but, and, and they've been ongoing for f four or five years. Uh, one is called um, Core Government Functions in the, uh, in the Aftermath of Conflict, um, and I think there is a draft out there somewhere. Um, and the second one uh, is the UN World Bank report on the prevention of violent conflict, which is really an attempt to stock take where we are at, looking at um, the convergence of all the literatures in the development world and the peace building um, world and um, 
and, and grapple with the question of we've still got using the same instruments that we developed in the middle of the last century to deal with a, a much more complex and fragmented world. So I think, you know, again, I, I, I think the space is moving, put it that way. Um, and uh, the, the international, I think I also wanted to problematize both the national and international levels. Um, often, as you, as you say, the national level is, is, is fragmented, it's, it's never monolithic, and international capital, for instance, even in places like the, the Pacific, have formed alliances with a variety of actors. I mean, we see that with extractive companies, with a variety of actors from the, from the village through to the national system. And so it's quite com complex and, uh, and um, you know, sometimes you could cut a story a slightly different way, depending on which perspective you, you bring um, to bear. Um, so, I do think that there is some shortchanging of um, the kind of internal thinking at the, again, these are at the upper echelons and it will probably, it will take many years to infiltrate practice, but there is an effort to grapple um, with, with complexity. Um, and uh, the, second, the second point I wanted to, to make on, on that was that um, as the world loses its old certainties, and really, you know, in the last, there's been a spike in conflict since 2010, um, and there is a growing acceptance that um, these are that that we are long beyond the apex of the Westphalian state in 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 that context. Um, while the nation state remains the basis of the international legal and political order and the, and the primary unit of intervention. It's also, um, uh, development is also fundamentally a historical revolution that's driven by national leadership and institutions, yet it's struggling, this, this global system is struggling to deal with the full consequences of globalization and the shifting nature of global political and economic power and its impact on the nature of violence. Um, and I think that's what this, the, these reports are trying to, to grapple with. Um, narratives of global grievance and injustice transcend the nation state and fuel ideologies across borders. And organised violence today involves groups who are not seeking control of the central state in, in some instances. And there are increasing numbers of conflicts that are not amenable to any negotiated outcome, which involves... Um, which focuses on the state itself. So I think that, that the scalar, um, your, your framework of scalar politics um, lends itself particularly well um, to certain sorts of struggles. And I think extractives is, is one of them, which very clearly goes from the village to the, to, to, to the, to the global level. Um, and you know it can it can uh, it, it touches a myriad of issues dealing with the regulation of transnational capital, the system of the management of rents by government, transparency and accountability of revenues, um, distribution to the periphery from the centre, um, the social impacts on systems and governance uh, systems of governance and social order at the most localised level, environmental degradation, livelihood impacts, etc. And you can cut those cut those uh, 
issues um, using your framework, I think, particularly well. Michael Watts and Doug Porter tried to do that in their paper on looking at EITI um, and, and multiscalar governance, um, which, which I think, and, and I think there is a lot more to, to be contributed by um, your discipline in, in this context. Um, I also think that um, the political geography um, in general and, and the scalar politics notion can also help us to think about some of the, the again, the, the changing nature of the conflicts of, of today. Um, especially, I mean, not in the Pacific, but in Africa and um, much of the Middle East, we are talking about conflicts that um, are going back to pre-colonial borders, if you're really to understand, understand them. And, and the, for example, the conflict involving Boko Haram began in Nigeria, but now affects Cameroon, Niger, Lake Chad Basin. Um, the conflict involving Al-Shabaab was centred in Somalia, now affects um, Kenya. So we are blurring the lines between international, <laughs> international regional, local, national, etc. So again, um, I think in terms of helping, helping practitioners think about what the changing nature of the world, you know, these three case studies are really grounded in the height, or, or they had their genesis, let's put it that way, at the height of the, the liberal model of peacekeeping um, and of, of development, really, the, 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 the smug notion that we had made it um, and that we were at the end of history. I think the world is a much more uncertain place today um, in that confident, you know, in terms of the co that confidence um, and that belief that we have the, pres the prescriptions, um, and I think uh, I, I think uh, it, your 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 framework might might help us um, think think uh, about 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 in, in a, at a level of ambition um, or level of modesty of ambition that we hadn't thought of in the past. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm struggling with illness, so I'm losing myself. I'm probably better in answering, uh, in answering questions, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay, thank you very much to our three speakers. Um, so we'll go to questions now. We've got about 15 minutes. Uh, so that means that questions are going to have to be shorter than tweets, and they're also going to have to end in question marks. Uh, Grant, your hand's up first, so you're first to rise to that challenge. Thanks for an excellent presentation. Um, really looking forward to, to reading the book. I'm interested in um, one of the themes that uh, Shahar you mentioned, um, but wasn't really picked up in the rest of the presentation, and that is the tension between the politics of scale, the social creation of scale, and the social production of space. And in terms of your results, um, talking about uneven results, and I wonder if you could reflect on what this means for um, uneven spatial development, which is what Neil Smith talks about and, and other um, political geographers talk about in terms of the development process and how that plays out. Thanks. 
Thanks, Greg. Um, good to see you again as well. Yeah. yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, we, we didn't really engage that uh, part of the, uh, the story very much in the book. I mean, Neil Smith um, is, you know, is interested in, is in how development uh, processes uh, construct space and then how, you know, in turn that uh, produces particular social relations, you know, that interaction between the two processes. Uh, I think that uh, that side of the story, I think, is reflected better in the historical sociological analysis that we initially developed in order to understand this situation in which the interventions then, uh, then step in. Although, uh, we find that there's a scale of analysis in many cases to that story as well. Because, for instance, um, in, in the case of, uh, of Ache, you know, yeah, to understand exactly how these processes have played out in terms of the spatial development uh, within Ache itself, you have to locate it also in relation to uh, how Ache is against the broader process of uh, nation uh, uh, building in, in Indonesia. So um, we, we focus on that element because we find that when it comes to interventions, the scale of story becomes absolutely crucial. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it then has a flow of uh, effects on, on those processes of, of uh, creation of space in other ways, as you described. But this is not a key element in our story. Um, it's, um, it's a story that focuses on international intervention. That goes to some extent to, uh, to some of the comments I made before. Um, we didn't focus so much on how the, na the nature of conflict itself has changed or how the nature of development has changed, but more about how international intervention then interacts with processes that have already been taking place for a long time in these sites. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it back because I'm sure that without a question, but I'm happy to uh, talk about it later with you if you like. Thanks. Sinclair? <clears throat> Thanks. Um, and uh, I too really looking forward to reading what sounds like a, a really important contribution. Um, and I, I completely agree about the, the importance of, of, of developing a sort of scalar uh, sensibility when looking at how power works um, in these sort of very complex environments and, and bringing the international back in uh, to a picture of power and politics that it's often been seen as operating outside of and, and uh, in and upon sort of stuff that is essentially happening locally. But what I wanted to sort of raise was really uh, the, the, the issue of international intervention and what that means. Um, because uh, as you alluded to, I mean, you're often talking about um, kinds of engagement that have long historical uh, pedigrees in terms of earlier, um, uh, earlier periods uh, of, of kind of relationships with international um, authorities. We're also talking increasingly today, I think, about the, the end of the state building moment or the passing of the state building moment. Does that mean that international interventions have ended? Um, I don't think so. Um, so. So how do you in a way define the category that is sort of framing your analysis. Your analysis I, I completely agree with, but I find the notion of international intervention somewhat problematic and, and something that perhaps needs to be considered in light of you know, the longer history that I'm sure you talk about in the book uh, and, and what happens after a, an international intervention like, you know, say, a Ramsey ends. You know, it simply takes on another form. Um, how do you sort of capture that? 
Well, we actually talk about it quite a bit, you know, uh, the sort of internationalization we talk about, we call it broadly state building, but they match, we, we argue they're much subtle than what they used to be, but there are so many around them, you know, even about attempting to institute, to constitute an ad hoc agency in switching and shifting uh, the power away from the bureaucratic apparatus upwards, that is in itself international intervention. So, can we actually think that that's why this book or this approach we think is important because we are talking about a number of interventions that are much more difficult to, 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 to note, to study, and there is increasingly importance in doing so because this kind of intervention do also operate in shifting power relations all over the world. So that's the kind of international intervention that we're talking about, not, not anymore or not only the large-scale intervention, but the much more subtle one. So, post-Ramsey, of course, there's still intervention going there. There are, there are intervention that are transforming the state from the inside. This is exactly the kind of intervention we're talking about. So, definitely, the look at the state building still going on. Can I just uh, add very quickly that uh, we, uh, we finished the book by noting that there is a sense in which the uh, age of state building has come to an end, although we also noted the stories of the actual case studies that a lot of the interventions that are typically associated with state building endure. However, in general, I could say that uh, I currently uh, am in the middle of a fairly large project on China's engagement with Southeast Asia, for instance, and there is this idea out there that China's not interventionist and so on and so forth. But to some extent, there is some truth in it. You know, a lot of the work happened through the national government and so on. But nonetheless, when actors develop transnational interests clearly across, you know, interests across borders, we find that they often act, and when I'm saying interest, I'm not just talking about pecuniary interest, I'm talking about sometimes sort of security or whatever it is. They do try to intervene various ways in order to shape how things are managed there. Uh, and you find the Chinese doing that as well. Um, so we think that some of the uh, issues that we talk about in, in the book, while they are focusing on like liberal state building, focusing on, on public administration reform, they could be applicable in some ways to those forms of intervention that I think will endure, you know, that are still play out. I think we had a question just next to Sinclair. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> just very quickly. Um, I think what international intervention has made, the, the big ones, not the small ones that, uh, that Fabio um, was alluding to, will also be very different. If you look at Yemen, um, it's the, the Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia that is constructed, that is putting up to $10 billion into a trust fund. Um, the UK is putting a little bit of money, you know, pledging $50 million or something like that. You know. So what is that out there? What is that intervention going to look like? It's going to look something different to Afghanistan and Timor and Cambodia, etc., etc., or the, the outcome of the kind of post- uh, Cold War Security Council detente, if I can put it that way. I think this is very, very good thing about the next one. Just to say one thing that when we talk about intervention, we talk about intentional interventions. We talk about efforts that actually change how society states operate. You know, so we don't talk about things that just happen. We talk about, you know, so it would include the arrival of a large transnational mining corporation in the Andean. If, if, that, if that company attempted to change how the, uh, the state operates, or the local state operates, then I would call that intervention as well. Yeah. Okay. It's usually led by state, but not necessarily so. Yeah. 
Okay, we've got a flurry of hands up, so now we are really going to stick to our tweet. I'm, just, I'm uh, quite sure. I'll yeah. just say I promise to buy the book very quickly. Unless we have one salesman. The way I would put it is if you look at your very last point, what happens if we just take of scale out of that statement? In other words, what does the notion of scale bring to your analysis that Sacco's sites of contestation doesn't? I think the, the, the notion of scale is important to address the fact that shifting uh, the decision-making at different scale facilitates the specific groups to access power and resources. So shifting scale is not only neutral. And I think this is an important point to emphasize. Uh, I mean, I'm talking from a position, um, both academic and, and practitioner, that is not often emphasized. No, again, if you introduce another agency uh, that has consequences for who is better placed to exercise political power in specific contests. And I don't think that is particularly well understood by interveners. Uh, so the scale element of intervention, smaller scale intervention, it is really important because from where I'm sitting, it has really important consequences from how power is exercised on the level. And I, that's what I wish uh, interveners would think. Can I just very quickly uh, just add another uh, point to this? Um, you know, we talk about national government and so on, but who are they? You know, how, how did one is considered to be national come to be seen as national, and something else come to be seen as local or provincial? You know, these things really matter in terms of how particular conflicts shape up and what results emerge. You know, both through intervention but through other processes as well. So this is something that we foreground. But well, we put that together with other forms of analysis, as I mentioned before. It's not standalone, but it plays a role within the context of international dimension, what we think is quite important. Okay. So Stephen was next in line. Yeah, thanks. Just to follow up the same line of uh, questioning, I mean, it is really an Occam's razor kind of issue. I, I think you need to give more examples. The example of the civil service reform didn't work in Aceh. I mean, has there ever been a, a successful civil service report project anywhere in the world? And uh, the basic reality is donors can't influence uh, the politics of these countries. So beyond uh, stopping the violence and maybe stopping some looting, uh, given that they can't influence the politics, politics is dysfunctional. So I'm sure national or local is one aspect of that. But I think you need to give more examples as to how that shed lights on the particular nature of failures uh, that, that you've studied. It seemed a pretty standard example of civil service reform failure. Um, well, um, before I hand over to Saka, which you can tell us if there were actually, because I, I can't think of any successful examples of civil service reform as well. We use a uh, uh, look also to some extent at civil service in the Cambodian case. However, we also look at uh, other things in the other case studies. So, you know, for, for instance, in the case of Solomon Islands, which uh, is one of the chapters here, we, we look at uh, the very significant difference between efforts to improve revenue collection by uh, the Solomon Islands government, which have been quite successful, at least for a period, and then efforts at uh, controlling expenditure, not very successful. And then we look at how the government itself used the revenue that's been collected to do its own public service, uh, public administration reform, creating CDFs, not creating, but vastly increasing CDFs, constituency, it's very hard work, development funds, shifting vast resources to those which then helped 
national members of parliament intervene in their own conflict with uh, those who would like to see uh, greater decentralization in, in the in Solomon Islands, you know, by allocating vast resources there. So that's an example, I guess, not of a public, not of public service performed per se, which specifically tends to be very fraught, but we can see that there, there have been some successes, but these successes are also shared by the context that we described in, in, the, uh, in the book. Okay, um, the World Bank review um, of all projects found that civil service and legal and judicial reform projects were the least successful of all um, in an IEG um, report on the, on the issue. Um, I just uh, wanted to say that there, I think on civil service reform, I would recommend to everybody um, a, a paper that's coming out in, the, in, in um, October, I think, on rebuilding civil services in the aftermath of conflict, which um, Jürgen Blum and Vivek Srivastava um, have looked at five um, post-conflict uh, or in-conflict um, contexts um, and came out with a very, you know, gone are all the technocratic templates that really grounded in the reality of, of having to establish, of, having to, of governments trying to establish order and stability, using civil service jobs as the mechanism for that, and really coming up with some very, some conclusions like, there's no way you're going to stop the wage bill from blowing out, but if you let, let, the, um, let the wage bill blow out in the civilian sector rather than the security sector, your chances of success are much higher in terms of overall, you know, order. So we, we, we've got to a, we've got to a kind of um, a much bigger embrace with the reality of how ugly these processes are, I think. Just, just to add just a second, in the specific case of Archer, uh, our aim there was to explain why it wasn't successful. But also the key point that I made in the specific slide was that maybe it is time to understand that this is sweeping reforms are not going to succeed, therefore we should focus on something else, on something that's more likely to succeed. So that was actually the key message in that specific I second to the project I analyzed. Can I just very quickly, uh, just remind me what Saka just said. Um, I think uh, it's important to uh, just note that we are aware that there's been a lot of progress in how the World Bank and other organizations, including uh, DFAT, think about uh, how to do those kind of things. However, we're also aware of this is not what the book is about, but there are some limitations in their capacity to take on these kinds of approaches. You know, there's very large literature out there on, on the, the legal economy of actually giving it, and we know that. It is difficult to absorb uh, or implement even in part some of the things that we would like to see. Um, so what we try to do, I guess, is uh, from our humble uh, perspective, offer some ideas about how that could happen. But we know that uh, there are very significant difficulties in terms of implementing that as well. Okay. So then I think the next hand was there. So maybe you ask quickly, then followed by you. We'll take the questions in pairs because we're running short of time. Uh, thank you. Uh, I used to work in Aceh after the tsunami, and one of the programs we implemented was to help the dumb, uh, former dumb members uh, transform into politicians, into the party Aceh. And uh, the program was not uh, very uh, favorite in Jakarta. People at the Ministry of Defense and Hanas, they were quite uh, suspicious of it, even though local actors believed the program to be successful. So how do you deal with this tension, you know, where you want to work with local actors, but at the same time, it comes at the political cost, maybe at the national level and in the capital. Thank you. 
and then we'll, we'll get another question hot on its heels and you can uh, choose what you answer. Yeah, this follows also up in some of the uh, discussions we had. So if you now enter this kind of post-liberal peace age, um, where do you see like the kind of normative compass of these kind of interventions? Because if really the underlying rationale stability, all of these interventions allocate and reallocate resources. So if we're really entrenching for the sake of stability certain structures or preferencing certain structures. So I wonder where this is heading to where you see like the, the kind of compass that would guide these kind of interventions uh, that doesn't go like all just in one single direction. I take the answer one. I say that my very good friend Agus Wandi that I think worked on the same program, a very similar program. We talked about this. We don't deal with this in the, in the book itself because we actually focus on a specific uh, project. However, one point that I can make is that what we explained at the beginning, how uh, in this case the relationship between the national scale and the provincial scale changed. At one level, the national scale allowed international intervention in Nature, which was not allowed prior to the tsunami. So that was something. But once that was done, really the provincial scale became the dominant scale. And there was a lot of going on at provincial level that were not happy in Jakarta. But really, the provincial scale became the dominant scale in, within international intervention. So, I didn't go into the detail of that, but this is one element I can say. It's the post-tsunami, a post-peace, there was this rescaling of the decision-making at the provincial level, and that's what really mattered. The uh, question there is a very important question, actually, and I'm glad that it was asked. Um, it's a question that we actually grapple with directly in, in the book, perhaps uh, not with as much uh, uh, space as we should have allocated to it. <clears throat> but I think, uh, what we, I'd like to make two points in relation to this. The first point is that we see the normative implication of the program is also shaped by what it actually produces. Okay, so if you have the best intentions, but you get the exact opposite in reality, then is that good? Probably not. Okay, so we need to walk into these things with eyes wide open and be able to undertake the analysis of what the program actually does achieve and who is affected by that in, in whatever ways. And that's what we're trying to do to an extent. That's the first point. The second point is that uh, we, 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 we think that essentially, um, you know, most, there's a cliche, you can't, not all good things come together. Okay, um, and, and I think that cliche speaks to some extent to what we're doing here. So sometimes you need to make trade-offs. Whether those trade-offs are good or bad, I think is something that needs to be decided by the person, you know, in, uh, intervening, deciding to implement uh, and, and, and um, design and, and implement the program. And therefore, what, what we do essentially is, in the cases that we have, we highlight what the trade-offs are, and we, we do forward a normative point of view in the book. We, are, we, we do see certain things as better than other things, but this is not our decision because we're not actually the one designing or implementing any programs here. We're just saying these are the kinds of trade-offs that emerge. This is the context in which those trade-offs emerge. Do you want to still do it? Ken, Saku, did you have any closing? I agree in terms of the trade-offs. And it also depends at what stage of development you're talking about, whether you're talking about trying to stabilise a country out of um, conflict um, a bit further down, and also the level of economic development. With what other kind of social and political um, factors you have 
and economic factors that you have to play within a particular context. You know, in the Cambodia case, for instance, you know, yes, the, the, the scalar strategies have to be recalibrated, but this is a classic case of a transition from an agrarian to an industrial society. With urbanisation, you have a lot of economic and political factors that can actually, that you can bring a much more normative kind of uh, agenda there um, to dovetail with local interests that you, than you could 25 years ago. We, we tried, but we totally failed. And um, you know, it, was, it, was, it was totally used by local actors um, to, 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 to perpetuate whatever systems of governance um, you know, uh, favored them. Can I have 20 seconds just to say something? Yeah. To... 170 characters. Okay, a tweet. Yeah. Uh, it's just in response because Cambodia reminded me, uh, the question that Stephen asked before, um, Cambodia is an interesting one because actually now we are seeing some significant civil service reform happening in Cambodia. But the reason why that is happening is actually because, uh, not, I mean, and a lot of that is a problem that no one has been advocating for a very long time. And the reason for that is because the CPP, the ruling party, the regime underpinned it, which is, uh, dominant, which is supported by uh, patronage essentially in exploitation of natural resources, has come against a situation where its capacity to control the countryside is weakening as a result of exactly the processes that Zach was talking about here. And there is actually demand for, for better services for people that live in those areas, which are currently not met. Now, the problem that they're facing is that they're trying, on the one hand, to improve how the civil service function, on the other hand, they're trying to manage the, the pressures for dis dispensing patronage, which actually hold the regime together. I don't think they can manage that very effectively, which is what we're seeing now ramping up of state coercion over the, the last few days and, and months. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much to all three of our speakers. Thank you for being a, a wonderful audience too. And thank you to my colleagues, Husnir and Ashley, for helping with this event. Uh, please join me in thanking the authors. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.